You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. It's funny, I actually I actually do write out the intro so I don't forget this stuff. And I accidentally wrote Tony Duchaner. And when I was in eighth grade, I started a new school in Millbrae. It was called Taylor Junior High. And there were four girls in one of my classes. And they dubbed me Duchaner. So my nickname in junior in junior high was Duchaner. Much better than some of the other nicknames they gave me throughout my <laughs> career as a pubescent boy. All right, Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 158 of Drinks with Tony with my guest, J.J. French. He's the founder of Twisted Sister, and he has a new book out called Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. And if you're in Los Angeles on September 26th, make sure to catch him in person at Barnes & Noble to get a signed copy of the book and shake the man's hand. It's Twisted Sister. Attention, Boston! I'll be in your city for a couple weeks in October, and I'll be taping audio not only for Drinks with Tony, but I'm working on another podcast that has a little broader a broader definition. So feel free to email me at duchane at gmail.com and let me know who you are and what you do. And we can chat about a possible taping while I'm in town. I'm an audio recording nerd. I have field gear. I bring it when I travel. And now, who wants to rock about books? Hey, this is JJ French, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have JJ French. He's the author of Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. Also the founding, the founder of Twisted Sister. JJ, how are you? I'm great. Where are you? Where am I talking to you? I am in like East Hollywood, Los Angeles. So I'm ah. right under Los Feliz, if you know where that is. Yes, I do know, as a matter of fact, because my stepdaughter lives there. And lives you, Los Feliz. Yo, does she? Well, it's a yeah. great. Uh, do you visit her? Because it's a great, it's yeah. a great part of town. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, she lives in an apartment building mm-hmm. on the main avenue. There's like a, a huge homeless shelter avenue as you're driving up a bit, and then you turn to her, on her Los Feliz Boulevard. I think maybe yeah. she's on. That's that's she's on that Los Feliz Boulevard. And so yeah, I mean we're out there. Um, we're out there in uh, June. Yeah, I Los Feliz is I because I'm I'm semi new to Los Angeles. I came here eight years ago, but I still feel new. But the Los Feliz is still my favorite neighborhood of Los Angeles. You know, it's I've been coming to Los Angeles since '83, and never drove into Los Feliz until she moved there. So I wouldn't know where it was until now. I know where it is, and it's not that far from you know from Guitar Center, for example. It's like a you know 15 minute drive. So yeah, close. To me. And it's interesting how um I because I do know some people like from the west side of town who live in like West Hollywood and stuff who've never been to Los Feliz. Yeah, You're or, like, oh, or yeah, some. Maybe... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or Silver Lake for that matter, you know? Right. Yeah, so yeah, because you can, I'm sorry, I'm going to just shut my phone off. Okay, so um, yeah, you can be living there for years and, and never know it. So um, so it's strange because, but Los Angeles is such a big freaking sprawling 
you know, it's not like New York City that's defined clearly by boroughs. Right. It's very simple. You know, it's really simple to get around. In LA, if you don't have a car, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're just screwed. I, mean, I don't know how else to put it. You have to have a car in LA. yeah the aesthetics of like la kind of still freaked me out a little bit because i grew up mostly in san francisco like right in the middle of the city so i didn't have a car till i came to la and i was like oh you know i'll just the the metro looks great in la there's the red line goes to hollywood (laughs) it's just like no you forget that how it works (laughs) you're never going to be using it exactly i've been out there for years i've never been in it i don't even know what the station looks like they're actually they're pretty cool i've i've used it to get downtown and stuff where i'm just sitting there going wow nobody's pressed up against each other and not a lot of people use public transit this is actually rad yeah but it ain't it ain't new york city that's for sure i i was i i was uh commuting on the l train in 2019 from uh brooklyn to uh manhattan and boy that let's just say personal space is uh there is none (laughs) No, but during COVID, there was, well, yeah, which was cr- crazy. All of a sudden, people stopped using the trains, and uh, it was a remarkable. It was remarkable how all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there was space everywhere, and nobody was using the trains. People are getting back onto the trains now. Was it a was it freaky to just not see subways and people on the streets and just not just? I mean. Listen, uh, I, I write for a lot of magazines. One day, my in April, a year and a half, you know, to the year before last, at the peak of its horrific effect in the New York area, when there were thousands of people in the hospital. Yeah, I was writing for a magazine, and my editor said, "How quiet is it?" And I said, "The only thing that's coming up the street are the ambulances. Uh, the hospital's up my street, so every five minutes you have an ambulance going up." And he said, take a picture of the avenue. So I went down to Amsterdam Avenue. I stood in the middle of the street in the middle of the afternoon and took a photo. There wasn't a car or a person. I went to Central Park one afternoon. I stood in the middle of the Great Lawn. I called my wife and I said, I am the only person in Central Park right now. And this city has got 8 million people in it. And I was the only person in the great lawn and the, I didn't see another human being around me and they had so many bodies stacked up in freezer trucks. You know about that, right? Uh, Yeah. And all the hospitals had freezer trucks for all the bodies. So, um, you know, where Mount Sinai is on a hundredth and fifth Avenue. Do you know, there's a huge complex. It's Mount Sinai hospital. Okay. So there's, um, it's right across the street from central park. Yeah. And there's a beautiful big, green lawn in front of in front of the hospital and it was a tent city of a hospital tent so it looked like something out of uh the night the 20th century early 20th century flu you know 1919 flu epidemic yeah there was just hundreds of white tents out there so uh it was weird and i I, and it's and it's so strange because now like even though it feels a little normal, we know it's not normal, but at the same time, I don't know. I hope we've gotten through that worst part of it where we don't see that again. Cause that was, well, you guys are, you, you guys are getting better, right? In, in California, LA is getting better. We're getting better here. Yeah. People are getting, yeah. 
people are getting vaccinated, unlike some parts of the country where you got stupid governors uh, with stupid laws and stupid rules. Oh, and uh, the results are they're killing people. They're morons and they're killing people. You know, that's what they're, they're just morons. I don't know what else to say about them. They're freaking. I never realized. I always knew we had stupid people in America. I didn't realize how many stupid people we have in America. We have a lot of stupid people in this country. And how much they follow the politicians now like it's a football team. I don't know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty, it's messed up for sure. Yeah. And you're, yeah. you're a native New Yorker. Yes, I am. Wait, what, 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 where did you grow up? Where I'm talking to you from. This room is where I grew up in. Are you kidding? Nope. Oh, that's rare. Wow. <laughs> Was this actually your bedroom that we're in? Yep. No. It's not my office, but it's in my apartment. Yeah. Wow. I've been here for 63 years. Wow. So yeah, I am a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah. It's that that's a rare that's a rare breed these days. What's it what's it kinda like? okay. What, what's kinda it like weird. The, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's I mean, it's just been my center of my life, you know, all my life. So yeah. Yeah, it's kinda it's interesting. It is rare. But New York City is an exciting place to live. I don't I don't know. I can live a lot of places, but I couldn't live permanently in any other place but New York. New York is a special location. I, I have not spent a lot of time there, but I love the energy of New York. I, it's, it's just, I, it's, it's breathing in a way where I just like, I, I feel like my breath can stay like it, it, it's like, I feel like my breath and the breath of the energy of New York city is um in, in sync somehow. Um, I have said this to my daughter. I've said, if you think that the city is boring, then you will have no problem anywhere else in the world. If you think this is nothing, then nothing else is nothing. Okay. New York has its own energy and its vibe. And if you live here all your life, you don't even think about it anymore. You know, you take it for granted. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm fortunate that I grew up here. Yeah. And the loveliness of the, of the neighborhoods. Cause I had to leave San Francisco. I left San Francisco to come to LA. And I, the thing I missed about San Francisco was walking down the street and hearing, Hey, yo, Tony. And, you know, and I'd be like, oh, and it'd be someone yelling outside of a bus. And um, that doesn't happen in L.A. because it's a driving culture yeah, and sure. everyone's not on top right. of each other where yeah. I, I feel like walking, to, you know, walking through San Francisco, which is nothing like New York. It, it's like it's like a it's like a petite uh, village of a borough in New York. But at the same time, there's still that leveliness of the neighbors, you know, and uh, yeah, it's a walking city. You know, yeah. New York is a, walk, is a walking city. And when I'm on the street, I always run into friends of mine. So yeah. people say, how do you do that? I said, because New York is just a whole bunch of tiny communities um, that look intimidating. But at the end of the day, if you ever wonder why there's a bank every three blocks, a nail salon every three blocks, a dry cleaner every three blocks, a shoemaker, everything, it's because people in New York don't like to go more than three blocks. <laughs> yeah. so, so, so if you walk out of my house... I've got, let's see, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I have 15 restaurants within a one block radius of my apartment building. 15. Yeah. That's within one block. Yeah. That, that's one block. Do you want to increase it to 10 blocks? I've got about 50 restaurants. So, you know. It's an embarrassment of riches and 24 hour supermarkets. You know, it's great. Is there, is there a, um, is there something that you like in your life 
like I don't know roasted coffee or just or something that is necessary that makes you leave and go a certain far to a far away part of New York where you have to go pick that up where it's a thing in another part of town. No. No. All right. I mean, if I want to, if I want a great steak, I'll I'll go down to Columbus Circle, which is a fifty, which is a twenty minute walk or a five minute cab ride. Yeah, and I can get a great steak. But I get I have a world class sushi restaurant, a ten minute walk from me. It's I mean it's it's world class. It's yeah. you know it's the kind of sushi that you have to make a choice to make either a mortgage payment or a dinner. <laughs> It's the best way I can put world-class sushi. As my father would say if he was alive, he said, you paid how much for a postage stamp piece of tuna? You know, I could send kids to school for that amount of money. Well, if you're into sushi, if you're into, you know, there's sushi and then there's okay sushi and there's good sushi and there's, you know, neighborhood sushi and then there's world-class sushi, whatever. I don't know where they get the fish from Harvard or Yale or something. I don't know where the fuck they get. I mean, the fish come from another breed of fish. I think they all have high college education. I don't know. Yeah. But I have one of those places by me. And because I have one of those places by me, if I choose to not make a mortgage payment, but have dinner, like tonight, I chose to not have a mortgage payment. I'm having dinner at that place. Because it's as you as you're eating, do you ever kind of feel a twinge of like, oh, crap, this is too much? No. I work really hard to be able to do that. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I do that sometimes. I, I mean, you know, I, I listen, I can eat really cheap 99% of the time. Yeah. But if I want a really good sushi, I'll get some really good sushi. I want a really yeah. nice steak. I have a nice steak. Otherwise, I can just, you know, cook some pasta and, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah. You know, it's not every night you go out and you do it. Even if you could, I wouldn't. It just happens to be there if you want it. Yeah. So. And I think that's the that's the beauty of places where there's where it's jumping. Um, because like you know, I'm getting older. I, I, I used like when I was in San Francisco, I used to write I used to write music for the San Francisco Chronicle. And I lived like there within a four block radius, there was about six venues I could just go to. And I could never even make it out of my neighborhood to go to another neighborhood because there was always great bands playing. And I, I would go out till 2 a.m. I'd write my articles till 6 a.m. I was out every night. And now I'm like, that's the last thing I want to do. I want to be home by 9 p.m. But it's always nice to know that if I didn't want to be home by 9 p.m., there's a lot of places to be at and go around. I, I kind of just like the feeling of knowing. Yeah. Well, I guess you could say that about New York. In fact, what you could say about New York is you could get anything in the world in New York. If you want to spend $10 million on a Monet or 50 million, you can, and you can buy it in New York. If you want to buy, you know, a, a 20 carat yellow diamond, you can buy it in New York. If you want to buy a two and a half million dollar Richard Mille or a Patek Philippe or an A-Lango watch, you can in New York. You want to buy a Bugatti, you can buy a Bugatti in New York. You want to buy the most expensive stereo system in the world, speakers that cost 900,000 bucks for your home, you can do that. The most, uh, most expensive apartment in, in the world is just was purchased last year, $238 million for wow. 4,500 4, square foot triplex on Central Park South. I'm not telling you this from envy, and I'm not telling you this because I care. I'm just telling you this <laughs> because New York is a, 
New York is a really bizarre borough. And Manhattan is a hermetically sealed bubble of real estate bullshit at the level of which maybe is rivaled in Dubai, maybe, but I don't think so. Because I think we have more apartments that's, that, are, that are over $50 million than we do anywhere else in the world. So we have a level of luxury spending in this town. This is why New York will never die. So all the people who wish, you know, like, oh, New York is dead. Bullshit. It ain't dying. It never died. It, re, it re-energizes itself all the time. You know, so you clear out some bums and you got more guys coming in. Everybody wants to have it in New York. Everybody wants to make it in New York. New York is this thing. It's a legend. It's bigger than all of us. Hollywood is no different in what it represents to civilization, okay? Hollywood represents something to civilization. So if that's what you want, you go after it. But if you think about the way the United States is constructed, you know, we have three bases of power. You have Hollywood entertainment, you have New York culture and banking, and you have Washington, D.C., political. So these are the power bases that exist. And 99% of the people who live in America wish they were in one of these power bases. Most of the people who live in these power bases do not wish they were in the rest of the 99% of America. And it doesn't mean the 99% of America is not stunningly beautiful and deserving of us living there. It just means that when my daughter gets up in the morning, she does not say to me, Dad, I want to live in Lincoln, Nebraska, or Dubuque, (laughs) Iowa. But 99% of the kids in Dubuque, Iowa want to live in New York, in Bushwick, or they want to live in you know, and so, you know, they want to live in LA, you know, or whatever. That, that's just the power. Now, England has it all in one section in London. It's all there. Politics, entertainment, and culture is all in London. So it's the size of you know, London, you know, England's like the size of New York state, but it's, everything is concentrated. So if it's a, if it's a hit in, in London, everybody knows about it because it's, it's a singular voice. But we have a gigantic country here, and it's and it's different that way, you know. So I I love London because London has the same kind of, you know. My daughter's British, and I, and I spent a lot of time there, and and I love the energy of London because London is all those things: it's culture, it's politics, it's finance, and it's all concentrated in like a one mile <laughs> radius in London. So you know, if you if you're getting off that on that stuff in the U.S. You can get off on that stuff in London as well. And I, I love, I love it. I mean, I love, I love England and I, I, I love London for its energy, but um, if you travel, do, do you go to England much? Have I've only traveled? been, I've only had a, a stopover at Heathrow. Um, oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, if you know the kind, I mean, I've lived, I've lived there extensively uh-huh. because the band was signed there and my daughter's British and there's beautiful places all over. I love England. Yeah, I, I I do need to hang out and visit. I do have friends in in London, and it's yeah, I've I and I, I love English culture. I love the I love the comedy coming out of England. You know the it's that that biting comedy that's just a little different. Um, just yeah. excites me. You know. Yeah, their 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 humor is fabulous. Yeah, it really is, and you know the Liverpudlians, the Beatles had that thing you know they're called scousers you know that right that's that's the nickname yeah so that's a certain a person from liverpool okay is a scouser and and they have a very cynical black view of the world and the beatles you know john lennon exemplifies 
in his dark cynicism, that humor, but they're all like that. So you go to Liverpool and you, you, you talk to the people in Liverpool, they all sound like it's the Beatles, it's Scousers. They're very funny, very sarcastic. You know, they come from the position that the, everything sucks and it's sucked ever since the war, <laughs> you, know <what> I mean? <laughs> you know, and then when you say it sucks since the war, pick a war, you can go back, you can go right. back to 1099, yeah. you know, in the, you know, in the invasion, the Normans invaded in 1099, you can go, you can go all the way back there, it sucks. So, you know, it's almost like everything in England does not look like a Harry Potter movie, but most of it looks like a Harry Potter movie. My in-laws there lived in the equivalent of Levittown, New York, in London, in England, which uh -huh. is a uh, which is curious because you know it's not ye olde England. It's a freaking bunch of houses with no basement. It is Levittown. You don't think Levittown exists in England because everything is so romanticized. You know, it's fucking Robin Hood and all that shit. Yeah, but but they lived in Basildon, which was the unwed mother's capital of England, <laughs> and um, you know it was just a curious. It was a curious place. Anyway, I've lived a lot of places. I, I, I think people really come together when things suck. Like I, um, like I grew up in a dreary suburb of San Francisco. And so there was a lot of coming together when it's just like, when, you know, um, when I, I think at some point it's, I think uh, disgust of certain things brings people together more than a joy of certain things. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's worked out differently on your end, but I, I, I find mutual dissatisfaction and disgust kind of a little more attractive than, oh, let's be joyous about this. Maybe I'm not Buddhist. Well, I certainly don't travel in circles of cosmic oneness with the universe. I travel in circles of oneness, one of, of, of uh, well, I don't know how to put it. Look, uh, what, what year were you born? 69. Okay, so you're way younger than me. Like I was born in 52. Uh -huh. So, so um, my perspective of the world is completely different. You know, I was, you know, I had the, I had the Beatles growing up. They were my thing. Yeah. So I always say that the music that you fall in love with between the ages of 12 and 20 are, is the music that pretty much stays with you for the rest of your life. And I had the Beatles at 12 to 20. So I had the bullseye go, I had the golden, the golden bullseye. And you got to Great see their time. progression yeah. in, a, in an amazing way. Like, Completely, yeah. I bought, yeah. Bought their record, I, you bought their records in real time. When the single came out, that's when you bought the single. When the albums yeah. came out, you bought the album. You, you're not living in this um, romanticism. I mean, I, I can listen to them all day long. I write a Beatle column for, for Goldmine magazine called Now We're 64. It's a great column and I love I love writing and I know far more about the Beatles than I than most normal people should. However, there are people who know way more than me because they have no life and that's the choice that they want to make. So, you know, I can I know these people and I'm happy they live and write books so people like me don't have to get that stupid, but we can read a book about it, but frankly, I don't need to research them to the point where Someone's going to tell me that on January 6th at four o'clock, George looked at John and told him his shoe was untied as they were walking across Abbey Road. I don't really need to know the minutiae at that point. However, there are people who do. And I'm grateful that they exist because it makes it easier for me because I can read about it and then tell you and then sound really good. Like I really know this shit. And at the same time, are these people the ones that kind of weren't there? So they're going back and researching and have a level of... Um... I don't think so. I think most oh, of them are like Mark Lewis and his 
is probably 70 years old or 71 mm -hmm. 72 and uh the guys at bruce spicer i think is 70. you know so it's it's no. it's, it's age appropriate crazy yeah <laughs> for the for the film for the most part for the most part but i think more books i think someone told me that next to jesus the beatles have the most amount of books written about them next to jesus christ huh and you know they're probably right but, but jesus, jesus got that like he's got that one horrible. book <laughs> he's got the one he's got the one the problem is jesus got one greatest hits album and everybody seems to own it and, 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 that, what, and that's the now, now as a businessman in this situation how does a how does the publicity of the bible how does that happen who is that's like the greatest publicist of all time the greatest well, marketing I, tool of all time so i have this question i ask people on my podcast uh -huh. and the question is if you could go back to any point in time to see something what would it be so i'm going to ask you that question if you could go back to any point in time what would be wow. the one the one point in time that you would want to see for yourself you know well well since we were just talking about jesus i mean they, they i do I, I i am curious as to who this guy was and who he really was not who we not who we've been led to believe that would be fun. But then, the, but then there's part of me that's utterly selfish that wants to go back in time when um, I'm like, you know, I could buy Atari at a dollar in the 19, you know, <laughs> there's, I, I get greedy. I don't know why I get greedy. I think I need, <laughs> but, but, you know, for the, you want to buy Amazon, you wanted to buy Amazon at a dollar a share, right. right and exactly. buy a hundred thousand shares. And now why couldn't you be so lucky as to do that? Exactly. But no, let's, let's just pretend like I'm virtuous. And, um, and I think, I think, I think, uh, I think a chilling around Jesus would be kind of cool and seeing the apostles, um, and just vibing them because I doubt they, um, I doubt the narrative that we have is the narrative that actually was. Yeah. So here's my thing. All the entire shtick of Christianity revolves around the resurrection. And if the resurrection didn't happen, the whole thing falls apart i mean we literally wipe out the belief system of about two billion people on earth yeah if the resurrection didn't happen right. in other words supposing jesus lived and there's still no proof that he lived but suppose he did right and then he was and then you know he was crucified supposing he was then they take the body and they put it in that cave right, right. i want to be in that because if nothing happened except cave robbers came in and took the body and buried it, then the whole freaking thing is down the tubes. Also, if Mary had sex with her next door neighbor, but told people that it was God because she didn't want to get her ass kicked by Joseph, you know, because who the hell wants to tell your husband you had an affair? So suppose she had sex with her next door neighbor and got pregnant. The kid comes out, it's Jesus. It's pretty well adapted, considering the fact that he was a product of an affair. It's bad enough. There was no therapist to help him out. And then he gets crucified, and then a bunch of grave robbers take the body and either burn it, kill it, or bury it. The whole thing falls apart. Well, if the belief system of 2 billion people fall apart, what happens to civilization? So this is a 
big question I ask myself. I'm not saying it did not happen. What I'm saying is I want to see it for sure. Because if it did happen and he ascended to the heavens, then by all rights and logic, we should all be believing in Jesus Christ. We should all be believing that he's the son of God. I mean, it's really simple. He either is or he ain't. Okay? So if it really happened, then there is no question. We know there is a God. We know he arose from the dead and ascended to heaven. If he actually arose from the dead and ascended to heaven, well then, okay, guess we're all Christian. Guess we believe in it. Except we, there's a myth out there. And by the way, that myth is only bought by 30% of the population of the world anyway. Two-thirds of the world doesn't buy that at all. They've got their own version. You know, Muslims have their own version. The Chinese have their own version. The Hindus have their own version. I, I am I'm a skeptic, but I'm not an atheist, meaning I refuse to believe. It's just that I want to know. Yeah. Because, if it be, because you know, the idea of Christianity or religious uh um, beliefs in general always fascinate me because um, there's so much creativity from the human spirit that goes into the adulation of these deities. They build buildings to them, churches. Right. They have great art. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, whether or not I believe that they existed or not doesn't take away from the fact that the belief that they exist has created some of the greatest art we have in the world. And it's also led to the killing of hundreds of millions of people, right? possibly unjustifiably. So I say this with the most respect to anyone who believes in any of these religions, which is, wouldn't you really want to know? Because imagine if we really knew, maybe we wouldn't be as fucked up as we are about defending these things. Yes. You know what's interesting that, uh, and this is uh, we go back a little bit. It's interesting that Jesus was crucified, then they put him in a cave and they put a big rock over it. Isn't that what magicians do when on when we're watching TV and they go, now now we're going to put this behind the curtain, and now it's a and cave then they roll away, away the curtain and not there, <laughs> not there the, it's Poof. gone. Yeah, How does it David. Right. It turns out that David Copperfield's great, 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 great grandkids were the people that rolled the stone. And by the way, if a stone is that big, how fucking heavy is that stone? Yeah. How many people does it take to roll a stone, to put a stone in front of a cave? Yeah. Front? It's a giant ass stone. Yeah. You know? But then again, the... who built Stonehenge? Who the hell carried that shit? Right. Hundreds of miles. Those things weigh a fucking ton. How did yeah. they get there? And I've been to Stonehenge. Yeah. And you look at it and you go, this came from like 200 miles away. Who carried this? How did they get it up there? I mean, you know, and the pyramids too. Listen, I'm all about, I want to know about this stuff. Yeah. I want to know how many people died in the pursuit of the belief of something that doesn't exist. That's another thing too. Yeah. So these are very large questions that every heavy metal guitar player asks themselves, obviously. <laughs> I think what we're trying to do is just um, get a grasp on existence in general. And so, and, 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 and the why of humanity, the, um, and, and the one thing I, one thing I want to uh, 
ask again, uh, say again about being there in Jesus' time was, wouldn't it be interesting if Jesus looked like the UPS driver that delivered to Mary's place? I mean, I'm being facetious here, but what if it wasn't a fair? And who's the guy that got written out of the whole story? Because he's the guy, it, it's his sperm, it's half of his stuff right, That's right. that we're here today for. Yeah. And yeah, and, and the fact that Joseph raised the kid without questioning it is amazing because otherwise he'd be pissed off that some guy banged his wife. Right. Right. And, and then he would be really angry and resent the kid for it and really cause the kid much greater psychological harm. And then again, in those days, maybe everybody was banging everybody else anyway. <laughs> maybe there was like 14 Jesuses and then just one of them got it. <laughs> Could be. I mean, you know, we just don't know these things. And I wish we did because this divine, you know, this, this is like, yeah, here's the, the, the bullshit that drives me crazy is the religious zealots to go, this is the only way. Now there's a whole right. Bible and they go, this is true. And you want to know the essence of the bullshit is, is that every kid that is born is the religion of their parents yep. until they are not. The kid doesn't get born and go, oh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The kid is born and the parent says, Jesus is our Lord and Savior, or Rabbi Shmuley is your religious leader, or Mahatma is your religious leader. Or so every kid that is born, every baby that is born, is the religion that your parents tell you you are. Yeah. And if your parents created you, then your parents are essentially God. Right. Think about that for a second. The parents are your creators. Yeah. The parents created you. And now your parents are telling you what to believe. And I have never seen a survey done, but I would love to know. And I know there's got to be a number out there. I just don't know what it is. How many people born on this earth change their religions from what their parents told them they were? There's got to be a number like yeah. 10%, 20%, 30%. There's some percentage that basically can be dumped on the human race that says like 35% of the people born to into a religion that their parents told they were decided to change. Yeah. At some point. And then how many go back? How many, go, how many leave? Or go then, to another religion or even skip to another one for that matter. Right. You know, you know, uh, how many, how many of them become atheists? I mean, my parents were, you know, and the other thing is take Jews, for example, uh, Judaism is a religion and it's, oh, it's a culture. But, you know, to say, you know, you can say, well, I'm Catholic, I'm this, I'm Jewish. Okay. Um, what denotes, you know, rabbis in Israel insist that DNA can tell you you're Jewish. And, I've, and, I, and I'm Jewish. I go, how the fuck is DNA tell you you're Jewish? How does DNA tell anybody they're anything? Right. And so the rabbis in Israel will say, well, if you're 99% Ashkenazi, you're definitely a Jew. Because everyone that lived in the Ashkenazi diaspora was Jewish, you know, in the part of the world that right. was that's considered the Ashkenazi center. I was having this discussion recently with somebody because we were, the discussion was that um, that in Israel, when a rabbi will only marry Orthodox rabbis only marry Jews if they can prove both part both people are Jewish. How do you prove somebody's a Jew? And by the way, if you can never be a lapsed Jew. You know, you, you can be a lapsed Catholic, but you can never be a lapsed Jew. Right. So no matter what you do as a Jew, you're a Jew. You'll always be, this is how the religion is laid out. 
Okay, you never be a lapsed Jew. But most new Jews or most converted religious people are way more religious than the religion dictates. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I got most of my friends are Jewish or atheists. Could care less. They, the only and the only reason why I know what Yom Kippur is because I asked my Puerto Rican doorman in my building when it is. I mean, that's how much I don't know. <laughs> it's about funny about my religion, you know. It's it's funny because I think of like atheists as I, I think of atheists having as much faith as Christians because they have so much faith that there's not exactly and and it's just like wait haven't you thought about a middle where what you know the question of maybe has a, is is like. I, I'm not going to go fight for my agnosticism. I'm not going to go out then. I'm not going to go out there with a bayonet and go, are you questioning? Are you thinking about life in general? It's, you know, it's the, it's the ones that are like, no, we're right. They're the ones that go out and fight. There's that's well, yeah. the, the title of my next book is called thank God I'm an atheist. So um, <laughs> seriously, that, that is the working title of my next book. I love yeah. that. Do not change yeah. that. <laughs> love that so much so you know because because you're right i'm a i'm a religious atheist yeah and i'll fight to the death to believe in nothing <laughs> don't tell me i can't believe in nothing i'll kill you to believe in nothing that's how much i believe in nothing yeah yeah but, but before i stab you with my bayonet could we have a like discussion about our differences and maybe we can change each other's mind a little bit yeah it's, so um, you were so you were a music reviewer? Is that, is well, that right? I, I used to write a column for the San Francisco Chronicle about the local music scene, and then um, and then I also wrote about books. So um, I was never a reviewer because I, I I never felt like um, that I had any authority to critique anyone who's worked their asses off to put a record together to go on tour. <clears throat> I I don't want to steer anyone away. So what I did, what my angle was you know what, what do I love and what bands do I like? And I got, I, I got, I was lucky enough to get a column in the Chronicle that was about the local bands. And I could just go, I love the sound of these guys and do a profile on them. And so well, in other words, if you were born 15 years, if you were born when I was born, mm -hmm. you would have been writing about the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson airplane and all the whole San Francisco scene. Right. I'm sure. Um, maybe, or maybe, or I would have been looking for the people that weren't them and who are out there uh, slogging away and not doing as well. I so, so I saw The Grateful Dead 27 times. Yeah. From, 19, from 1968 to 1972. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So, so I saw that, and Jerry Garcia gave me a tab of acid at the film one, once. So yeah. I'm a deadhead. Okay, a real legitimate. Yeah. I was a, a uber legitimate deadhead. But, but yeah. the story that I tell about the dead is, is that for 26 times I saw them on acid, and for 26 times, it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And then I saw them straight. and It was the worst fucking band I ever heard. And I said, <laughs> and I went, what the fuck am I doing? This is like the worst thing ever. So that became a standard joke that I would tell, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's, alternative, there's also like, what did the guy say when he stopped doing drugs about the dead? You know, this band sucks. So I, I walked out on the last show because I was straight and it was just boring as shit. So anyway, I made that statement in my in the Twisted Sister documentary, I said I, was, I used to be a Grateful Dead fan and all this, and then I stopped doing drugs and it sucked. And uh, and I got an email and it said, hey, JJ, just watch the documentary. So what you said about the Grateful Dead. So, and it's signed Justin Kreutzman. And I went, Kreutzman, that's the drummer's name in the Grateful Dead. So I wrote back, you wouldn't be related 
to Bill Kreutzmann, would you? And he goes, it's my dad. And I went, uh, I'm sorry. He goes, no, man, that's the funniest shit I ever heard in my <laughs> life. He goes, I, I showed it to my dad. So the shit was yeah. killing me. So we've become yeah. friends. I'm going to be interviewing him uh -huh. on my podcast in about a month because he did he produced the documentary Long Strange Trip about the Grateful Dead that's uh -huh. out on Netflix now. Oh, cool. He, he produced it with, with Mark Pincus, who is my record company president at Rhino. So because of because of that, I said I want the two of you on because yeah. I want to talk to you about the dead. Because I, I enjoyed the documentary a lot. I mean, look. Whatever one thinks about the dead, they created an amazing cult, a, a super cult. Yes, I and when and as you were as you were talking about that, I was thinking in my head about the religion, uh, religions, and the um, what do you call it? The uh, the the following of religions as well as following of bands and how there is. It's I think we're all looking for God in some way, even yeah. if there even if there isn't a God. We're looking for that one. So, well, the, Jerry ahead. Garcia talks about that in the documentary. Mm. He talks about the fact that people perceive him as some sort of a deity. Yeah. And the band is some sort of a, and he just says, man, that's ridiculous. I'm not, I don't even, why, why are you doing that? I mean, he's really saying this. He goes, I don't want to do interviews because I don't want, you know, you, you like rise and fall over things I say. I'm just a guy. I play guitar. You have imbued in me this. I, I love this about him. Yeah, that he was this. He said, he said, adoration of a band at this scale is reminiscent of Nazi Germany. And he said, and he said, fascism is spawned by this kind of adulation, and um, and we have to be very careful as to how we handle it. This was a very self-aware statement to make, because yeah. people who get hung up about their own stardom don't understand the cult of personality. And, uh, and I've always, uh, you know, I, although I loved certain bands, loved them to death, um, I've always been wary of the cult of personality. And I also am worried, I'm also weary of stardom. And I never, uh, I never really went out for it. Once the band hit it big and, and people started coming to me and reacting that way, I'm like, no, man, it's like, I'm just this guy in the neighborhood that happens to be a, a, in a creative band that does, you know, that, that became successful. But like, don't live your life on my life because that's just absurd. Yeah, but it, it's really it, what I what intrigues me about fame and blows my mind. And you know, I have I haven't been in Hollywood that long, but I I've seen it a little bit. Is the way you like if you walk outside and all of a sudden people know who you are, and they only know who you are for the for this part of work that you do, and they're looking at you they they they're looking at you with these eyes of just the, just the way people look at you differently has got to be a total like mind warp in the head as you're, as you're going through life. And then I, and I feel bad for these kids who are getting it young when they're getting it in their late teens and early twenties. It's, it's like, of course they're doing drugs. Cause it, you know, how do, how can they handle something like that without maturity? How can they handle something like that? How can they, how can they handle being godlike? And having that power just by walking out their door and people, you know, you go to a restaurant and all of a sudden all, all heads turn. It's kind yeah, of the weirdest you, thing. And why do you want that? I think it's that right. um, I, that invasion of privacy is mind blowing. Why would you want it? You know, to, David Bowie, Tony Danza, 
couple of other celebrities have said this, have said this about celebrity dumb that I'm about to say, but I've said it about celebrity dumb. And then I've heard others say it and it's interesting. So what I say about celebrity dumb is I'm famous enough to get a reservation in a good restaurant and get a good doctor. And Tony Danza was being interviewed once on a TV show, and they said, man, you're such a celebrity. And, you know, Tony Danza is a school teacher now in Philadelphia. Do you know oh, that? Oh, is he? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. I, I know. You know, he's always yeah. been cool. I never yeah. thought of him as uncool. I yeah. don't know why. So, I mean, he still may be. But anyway, he was on <laughs> Regis and Kelly or something like that. And yeah, they said, yeah. well, you're so famous. He goes, I'm not really famous. And they go, yes, you are. He goes, no, you're not. I'm famous enough to get a good, uh, to get a, to get a good table at a restaurant and to get a good doctor. And, and when I had my heart, I had a couple of heart surgeries 15 years ago, I needed to get a really good doctor. And because I'm JJ French, a twisted sister, I was able to get right through to this Maka doctor who operated on me, but I probably couldn't have gotten through as fast as I did if I was just Joe Blow. Okay. Um, and David Bowie, he has, he has a very funny comment. I don't know the exact quote, but especially he's saying the only thing celebrity is worth anything about is to get a good restaurant reservation. So, <laughs> so these are people obviously who have put it in perspective. Yeah. Okay. Now, now keeping that in mind, John Lennon's last interview before he was killed was with a BBC writer who came to New York to talk to him about double fantasy, you know, cause it was being recorded at the time and they were finishing up mixing it and he was staying at a hotel near the Dakota, but he spent eight hours a day at their apartment in the Dakota. So for two weeks, he interviewed Lennon and Yoko. So you have to keep in mind that during the last week he interviewed them, Mark David Chapman is down in the vestibule every day for a week, waiting for Lennon to come. Uh -huh. So just keep in mind how this conversation takes place because Lennon's on the fifth or sixth floor at, when he says what I'm about to tell you. And Mark David Chapman's right down below. So his killer, is only 50 feet away from him the day before Lennon was killed. The last question that was asked by the interviewer was, how safe do you feel in New York City? Okay. And he said, where I live now, I feel very safe. I used to live downtown. And Bowie said to me, get a place uptown. It's really hip. And people leave you alone. And he said, I live on the Upper West Side. I go out and walk around the neighborhood. Some of the doormen say hi. People don't bother us. Yoko and I go around the corner um, to get coffee at this 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 uh, little restaurant. So everyone treats me great. And he gets killed the next. <laughs> gets killed the next day. So yeah. um, you know, I hate to say that if I put it in perspective, don't it? But yeah, it's in perspective, you know. Well, and not 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 to diminish the uh, the killing of John Lennon, but do you remember that movie, The Jerk, with Steve Martin, yeah. when yeah. when he got his name in the phone book and he runs around, and he's like, "I'm famous, I'm famous." And then there's one guy that there's a serial killer that's looking at the phone book and picks a name. It turns out to be him, so he just goes to try to randomly kill him. So the uh, the absurdity of um, I guess the absurdity of humanity, it's just, uh, it's just like, I guess, I guess we, we can all be, sus, uh, what do you call it, susceptible to, to these, uh, these psychos. But unfortunately, unfortunately, if you're in a position like John Lennon or someone, there, there's people out there that want, they want their fame so bad, they're going to do heinous things. So 
Well, that's that. That's those people. The only thing they can do is something evil. Right. And so, did you get the book, a PDF, or did you get a book, or did you not? Did you did you get a chance to read it? Yeah. <laughs> you did. Did you? Did you actually? Did you actually read the book? Was it? Yeah. Was, yeah. Did, did it surprise you how what it was about, or did you expect something else? It was interesting because I liked. Um, well, I was a little. So I got to tell you, I was a little scared because I thought it was going to be totally about the business and kind of geared in a um, in a way of. Uh, and you too can do this. I was I was scared it was going to be a TED talk, but it turned out that it wasn't. And I just I really liked how. Um, we got the history of the band, but we also got something where it's just like, Hey, I love the message where it's just like, Hey, get the shit done. Do all the, do all the practices, do, do all, do all those live dates, put the hard work in. And, and I also love the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, the, the, the no drugs and no drinking rule, which is, I grew up a Jehovah's witness. So I, so I couldn't get your record. Um, and when stay hungry came out, as a kid, I was that was like something that my friends would pass to each other like contraband because it was satanic. And then you but you, to read your story and look back at it and be like, you guys are like doing it right. You're the opposite of that. And it's just it's there's there's a beauty, there's a beautiful connection I have to that. And, and then to yeah, hear it then reading the back end of it and the behind the scenes. Oh, you just froze up. Oh, are you there? Oh. Yeah, you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. when I'm we complimenting had, you. Right when yeah, I'm complimenting yeah. you, the internet goes we out. Had, we had we had a Christian group come to see us in Texas. They passed laws to keep us out of Texas, anti-rock laws, which were stupid, like because it's written by stupid people who yeah. think stupid things. Like they passed a law that says that, that if you sing songs about having sex with with children, dead people, or animals, or you perform sex on stage with children, you can't play in this town. I'm sorry. Like, that means that every band is going to play in this town. <laughs> These people are stupid. But anyway, this right. church group came came in. And um, at the end of the night, this, one of these evangelist guys comes in the dressing room and he says, and he goes to me, you know, man, you curse a little too much, but you're pretty entertaining. And I said, are you telling me you like my band? And he goes, uh, yeah. I said, do me a favor. Never tell any fucking person you like my band. That will destroy my reputation. So there's nothing worse than having an evangelist telling me I love my band. That will just fuck it up even more, you know? Yeah. So yeah, being straight in the business was not hard. And people always say it's hard. It's not hard. If you're straight, you're straight. You know, it's like you just don't because you don't. I mean, I, it's not you could put 20 pounds of coke and not going to matter. You either do it or you don't do it. And so right. don't do it. But the record label did not like us talking about being straight yeah. because they said it hurt our reputation. Isn't so they crazy? asked us to yeah. So they said, you know, don't talk about it. And I said, you know, this is so fucked up. If you're a politician and you're caught in a hotel room with a underage girl and cocaine, you know, you're out. You're out of politics. If you're a famous sports star and you're caught in a hotel with an underage girl and cocaine, you're out of sports. But if you're a rock musician with an underage girl and cocaine, they write songs about you and they give you yeah. a Grammy and they make a movie about you. <laughs> it's it's um, it's so weird. The image thing drives me nuts because. It, I, I just want to hear good music. I don't, I don't care who's banging who and what it's. And then, and, and I think, I think you brought up something about really cool about you either do it or you don't, you can't, I think in the, in the band situation, you can't dabble. You can't do, you can't do one line of Coke here. And then all of a sudden it's expected when you're in other situations and there's kind of like a, 
okay, well, I'm known to just, you know, I'm known to, oh, of course, I'll just have that one rum and Coke here. And then all of a sudden on your next gig, it's like on the writer going, make sure everybody gets a rum and Coke and it's thrown at you. But if you say no, absolutely not. Um, and there's, there, it's like there's zero, then it's not thrown at you. I, you, you could tell me, cause I have not been in a world-class. Well, multi, I, I will say this famous rock and roll band. We're, we're not, we're not like, um, draconian Jehovah witnesses, you know, a couple of guys, in the band will have their beers and some wine stuff like that. And, you know, to me, I don't care if you did that socially, but you can't carry that mentality into rehearsals. You can't carry that mentality onto the stage. You can't carry that mentality on a tour bus because it will prevent you from playing at the top of your game. So what you do on your own time is your business. I don't sit there with a, with a guard dog. I don't care. As long as you deliver 100%. But the fact is, is that most people can't moderately do it in the rock business because they believe it's an unfettered license to be stupid and to act like a moron. So, yeah, there are people who can, you know, my guitar player, and my drummer, they, they, they socially you know, involved, but I never saw it. And, and like someone said to me, did you ever see him hammered, you, you know, uh, once maybe, I mean, you know, that, but you expect with Bontley crew or these other bands that they're just perennially wasted all the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, my guitar player, Eddie was famous for telling me that if he was in Motley crew, he'd be dead because, <laughs> because every, it's there. Right. But we don't want it there. And it's not on the buses. It's nowhere. Well, if it's nowhere, then it's easy not to do it. Do you, you follow? So so for me, D and Mendoza, completely nothing. Because we just didn't like the taste of alcohol and drugs. You know, I, I described my drug my drug use in the book pretty mm -hmm. extensively. I, you know, unlike D and Mark, I had a drug past and I was a dealer. So I had a pretty fun time for those five years as a drug dealer and a drug addict. I had a great time, except at the end when it was killing people. Yeah. And then I made a decision that I had to save myself. But what people have a hard time wrapping their head around is that I actually said, yeah, enough is enough. And I stopped on a dime, which I did. And it's true. And people who know me and grew up with me know I did that. That's rare. It's rare that you can just go, I'm cool. I'm done. Very, very, very rare to be able to do that. But I did that. So I'm very happy that I did that. It was great for me. And um, but then I joined the band. I mean, you have to realize my mom knew me as a drug dealer and a drug addict. So I told my mom I'm straight. She was thrilled. But then two months later, I said, I'm joining a transvestite rock band. I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, really? That's that's your solution? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Is that really it? I just when I thought maybe you'd be going to take a trade trade course or something. You're going to be a transvestite now. But, you know, I told my mother, you know, that's kind of funny. But I told my mother early on when I dropped out of high school, when she said, what are you going to do with your life? I did say I'm going to become a rock star because I wanted to shut her up from the argument. I didn't know what I was saying. It sounded really impressive. Right. I'm going to be a rock star. I just told it to her to shut her up. But, but, but actually, those words to my mother uh, echoed in my brain. For years so on those nights that things were really tough and really bad i'd go for these walks and have this imaginary conversation with my mom you know like i said i'm gonna be a rock song you know so what we did was as uh, as i describe in the book we were turned down more times in a bed sheet in a whorehouse and come back more times than freddy krueger michael myers and jason Voorhees. yeah but it's true 
we learned lessons on how to survive trauma. And I tell the story in the book. I, yeah. I explain step by step. You know, this is not some sort of ambiguous book. This is a, I say, here's the problem. Here's how I looked at it. Here's how I dealt with it. And this was the reaction to my movement. Very systematic. Yeah. However, when it was happening, I can't tell you that I thought my, of myself as Dr. Phil and some sort of genius. But as I had the opportunity to look back on my life and look at the diaries, we seem to take this pathway, which became the twisted method of reinvention, which I describe in the book by using the letters in twisted, tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence, and discipline. Those are the seven factors that made the band big. But if you ask the average person how that band become famous, oh, they must have made a deal with the devil or, you know, sex, right. drugs, rock and roll, partying, you know, luckiest sons of bitches in the world. However, if you go to the back of the book and you see how many shows we played, it's mind boggling, isn't it? Yeah. It, well, and it's it, truly mind boggling. It's mind boggling and it makes sense because it is. It, it, and what's great about it, what, what's um, when you're met with, when you're met with no, no, and when you're met with constant, when you're met with rejection, when you're met with tragedies, um, what matters to us as humans is what do we do in the face of those obstacles? We can shut down, we can close it all down, or we can make we can make something great out of it and keep going, even when it feels like we're getting our teeth pulled out. Um, the, the, the determination to keep going is essential. I mean, that feels more like a spiritual practice to me than yeah. reading a Bible. Well, I'll tell you that chaos does not create character, but it exposes character. Yeah. Because you don't even know what you're made of until you're confronted with some of that stuff. Yeah. And all of a sudden you find out. Now, some of it is learned, absolutely. But a lot of it is innate as a human being to survive. Yeah. You know, we're not just designed to be happy. We're designed to be sad. We're designed to be angry. You know, we're designed to be a lot of things. And keeping a perspective in, a, in it is important. And I think the book goes a long way in helping especially musicians, although my rules of engagement don't matter who's following it. It could be a musician. It could be a shoemaker. I was, I read, I read it, it as matter. a writer, as a writer, I read that. And it, mm -hmm. and it, and it inspired me to what I felt 20 years ago when I was, when, when I had a force in me that was like, I am not going to stop until I get here, until I get here, this has to happen. And there comes a point where sometimes the marathon is so long you got to take a breath and sit on the side for a while and like hyperventilate. But what your book bring, what your book shows is just like, yeah. And get right back on that horse because that means everything. It's it's that's yeah, it. Well, people have said to me, I'm, I'm really smart. And I said, well, I'm either really smart or really stupid. <laughs> like I didn't know when to, that, you know, but a lot of times I felt like we were on an ice flow melting. I was waiting for the helicopter to come down and pluck me off the ice flow. And and that that analogy, you know, there's a joke about that, like knowing when to grab that, you know, that final hook as things are about to come crashing down. The joke, you may have heard some semblance of the joke, but it goes like this. This guy's in a house and there's a flood and, and the water is up to the window of his house and he's an old man and, and he's going, God help me. And a, coast, and a boat comes by and it's a coast guard. So jump in the boat, will save you. And he goes, no, no, the Lord will save me. The Lord will save me. And then 
an hour later the water's onto the second floor and he's god sell me in a boat another coast guard boat jump in the boat oh no the lord will save me and then like an hour later the water's up to the roof he's holding on to the weather vane he's got help me help me and the army comes down with a sky hook he says grab the hook we'll save you he goes the lord will save me and an hour later a wave comes knocks the guy out and he dies and now he's in heaven he's at the gates of saint peter he looks at saint peter he said how can you let me die and saint peter said you know you're an asshole i sent you two boats and a fucking helicopter what more do you want me to do yeah yeah <laughs> you know so <laughs> So where are your two boats and a helicopter? And can you recognize the boats and the helicopter when they come by? That is the key, the recognizing when, when the help is there and then being open to it. Yeah. And by the way, being open, I am a firm believer when you walk out of your house on any given day, you can have a conversation that can change your life. But in order to have that conversation, you have to have that conversation. Which means you have to be open to that conversation. You have to be open to the possibilities. If you're cynical or you're shy and you want to put the covers over your head and you want to mourn and wallow in your own self-pity, nothing's going to get you out of it. You have to be in it to win it. You have to leave yourself open. And by leaving yourself open, there's also downsides to leaving yourself open. This is true. But I cannot tell you. I couldn't tell you. If I had a, if I had to boil my life down to like ten dates, like the ten dates that changed my life, maybe it's another book. I could tell you those dates and why they changed my life. You know what I mean? That's the yes. kind of thing. I think I think many of us can do that because our brains are not built to remember every waking hour of every day. It's impossible. But our brains are wired to remember the the days that make the most impact. You, know, yes. you remember the days of your birthdays, the day that your mother, the day your mother died, your father died, your brother died, your sister died, the weddings, the da da da, the births, the deaths. You remember all that stuff. You remember your wedding day. You remember your divorce if you had a divorce. Like these are scarring. These are heavy issues that that burn themselves into your brain. I have an enormous capacity to remember a lot of stuff, which is a blessing and a curse. But I've been wired that way as far back as I can remember because I always thought. I was so self-absorbed as a person. I thought that my life mattered more than most for whatever reason. That's pretty narcissistic and self-absorbed. And I'm self-aware enough to say it. But because of that, I attached sociological importance and dates to things so I could use them as tent poles. So in other words, 963 Kennedy was assassinated. I can tell you whole things that happened around that period. The Beatles come in 64. I can tell you whole things that happened around that period. And so you know, Bobby Kennedy was killed and Martin Luther King was killed and the anti-war demonstrations occurred. And then I was, you know, involved in anti-war demonstrations. And, you know, then I was almost busted on this day and I was almost busted on this day and talked my way out of it. My friend almost died on this day. And you know, the band started on this day and then that band broke up on this day and that day happened. And then there was a, there was a, there was a gas shortage that in 1973 that affected our band and the son of Sam was killing people in 1976 and 1977. I can tell you the clubs we were playing at because of it. These things allow me to remember to the point where the guys in the band will say, what happened on that day? Now I have a diary and I go back and I can, and I've refreshed myself. But I have a pretty interesting ability to. Resist. Meanwhile, my wife will tell you that my memory sucks and I don't remember a thing that she told me yesterday. But that's just a joke, like in a way, you know, like yeah, that's yeah. like that's because as spouses, we choose to not hear what we choose to not hear. It's called selective hearing. 
you know, it keeps marriages it, together. <laughs> it does. It does. And, you know, and, and, and by the way, you know, an audiologist once told me that men lose their hearing at the spectrum of a woman's voice. And I said, you know what, if, if I was going to give God credit for intelligent design, <laughs> if there really was a God, and I realized they designed men's hearing to deteriorate uh, uh, at the frequency of the wife of the spouse's voice, I would say, well, maybe there is truly a intelligent design. <laughs> <laughs> it's, now to get, it's now time to get baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. So, uh, yeah. JJ, thanks for so much. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting podcast. We kind of like didn't have a beginning end and I, this, the question just started. So I didn't even know where you were going, but it was fun. And, and, and I'm going to be in LA signing at Barnes and Noble on the 26th. JJ French on Drinks with Tony, the founder of Twisted Sister. Check out his new book, Twisted Business, Lessons from My Life in Rock and Roll. And also, if you're in Los Angeles, make sure to catch him at Barnes and Noble on September 26th. And you can meet him in person and get your personal copy of the book signed. The book comes out probably today. If you're listening today, it's out. If you if if you're if you're if you're listening, you can get it now. Just released. All right, and please rate Drinks with Tony, like the show, follow us wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. You're listening to 101.9 FM KPCRLP. Santa Cruz.